Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace, and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. For the sake of our visitors, we're dealing with the series on fasting, right? On fasting and, and prayer. And it is sobering, for want of a better word, for me, to have revisited the simple principle of fasting to uncover it from a more kingdom perspective as concerns a personal perspective of fasting. Most people in the Bible, whenever they fasted, fasted for reasons beyond themselves. The reasons were always corporate or involved a broader community, usually the state of the nation of Israel. So one man fasts, one woman fasts, because of the state of the corporate nation. And I want to encourage you, when you seek God's kingdom, first, He will add all things unto you. Part of your expression of seeking first God's kingdom would be sometimes when God calls you to pray and fast for issues beyond the immediacy of your own personal needs. And you begin to focus on God's heart and God's agenda for the state of the people. I told you that, for example, when Nehemiah fasted, and in the house church meeting on Tuesday, we all did a summation of that study. And remember one principle that came up was the tension between accusation and intercession. Before God's throne, there are two streams of ministry. One is accusation, and one is intercession. Revelation 12 teaches that Satan stands before the throne of God to accuse who? The brothers, day and night. He's called the accuser of the brethren. But the book of Romans says, or Hebrews says, that Jesus is and he sits at the right hand side of the Father, and what does he do? He makes intercession. So before the throne, there are two streams. One is accusation from the enemy, and one is intercession from Jesus, you can be influenced by one of those two streams in life. Whenever you see your brother in sin, in error, or in a fault, either a singular person or a whole group, you can either respond with the pointing of the finger, with judgment and accusation, or you can respond in deep concern, in prayer and intercession for the state of the person. Amen? And I hope by now you have learned It is Christ-like more to pray than to accuse. It is satanic to accuse, but it is Christ-like to to pray. So next time, let's say you become aware of someone's grave sin, someone has messed up big time. I want to encourage you, position, instead of judging the person, what you must do is be concerned, say, God, even if I have to fast and pray, I get burdened by the state of my brother, my sister, or that family, or some church, And so I present them to you in prayer, and I pray for their restoration, for their redemption. I pray on their behalf. 
And sometimes you'll be able to fast with that objective in mind. You're fasting beyond the immediacy of your own needs, and the focus is another brother. Tell your neighbor, you are still your brother's keeper. Now, the exiles that were in Babylon were there for 70 years imprisoned in Babylonian captivity. Not so. They were released after 70 years by a decree of Cyrus, the Persian king. Right? They came back to Jerusalem in three waves. Or three installments. First group was led by Zerubbabel. The second group was led by Ezra. The third group was led by Nehemiah. When Zerubbabel led the first group, they rebuilt the temple. After much opposition, the temple was rebuilt. Then Ezra would come to Jerusalem as a scribe. And just, I'm just sum- summarizing last week's lesson. He's given permission by the Persian king to leave Babylon. You must remember by this time, the Persian Empire had overthrown the Babylonian Empire. One thing that emerged in our discussion at House Church on, on, on Thursday was this, in Durban North. Remember Daniel prayed and fasted? What prompted Daniel's fasting? Daniel was studying Jeremiah's writings. Daniel was not just a prophet. He was a student of prior prophecy. Jeremiah himself was a prophet. So Daniel studies the word of God in the writings of Jeremiah, and he discovers that 70 years need to be accomplished in terms of Babylonian captivity before God releases his people back to Jerusalem. And he he determined by the writings of Jeremiah that this time was almost imminent. It was about to happen. So what does he do? He sets himself to pray and, and fast about the matter. Not so. I taught you that every time God reveals his will to you from his word, the revelation of his will is in fact It makes you accountable and responsible to pray through that which has been revealed to you. Because it has been revealed doesn't mean you should not pray. If God comes to you and says, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, simply because God said it doesn't automatically guarantee its doing. God reveals His will to you so that you can partner in prayer with Him to get the will done. Let thy will be done. On earth as it is done in heaven. And I shared with you five case studies that prove this principle. I don't want to rehearse that because of of time. Even when he had a vision concerning these things, he set himself to fast and pray. And he was still in in Babylon. The archangel Gabriel came and said to Daniel, From the first day that you set your heart to seek, the Lord your God, I heard you. So from day one of Daniel's fast, when he set his heart to see God, from that first day, was he heard or not? Yes. But when did he receive the answer? When? 21 days later. 
What was the delay? You know your Bibles? Come on. In the heavens, on his way to give Daniel the answer, he said, the prince of Persia withstood me for 21 days. But where is Daniel? Is he in Persia? Daniel's in Babylon. Should not the prince of Babylon be fighting a penetration into the region? You know that every geographical setting has got a spiritual counterpart in the unseen realms. And there are hosts, powers, and principalities governing territories in the unseen realm that have geographical counterparts. So Daniel prays and he fasts. From day one, when, 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 when Michael came and Michael said to him, from the first day you set your heart to seek your God, I was sent to you with the answer. But the prince of Persia withstood me, and I had to battle and battle. Or was it Gabriel? I think it was Gabriel. Mike, and he said, it was Gabriel, and Michael was sent as reinforcement. Michael is the, the warring archangel, sent as reinforcement to overcome. Remember the story. My thing is this. The prince of Babylon should have been the major obstacle. Right? Here's the deal. Persia would have only conquered Babylon years later. Not so? Years later. But usually, the spirit realm is far ahead of the natural realm in the unfolding of things. In the spirit realm, it was already done that the Persian Empire would have overthrown the Babylonian Empire. Daniel's already in Babylon praying. And I shared with the group this. Listen carefully. Sometimes when you are burdened by an issue, like Daniel received revelation, and you decide to consult your God in prayer and fasting about the same, in, in that environment, God is able to inform you about realities that are true in the, nat- in the unseen world that have not as yet found its practical expression in the known world. But in prayer you are armed and dangerous, as it were, about a reality to come. That is why I believe, you know, it probably fueled Daniel, because he was a prophet with great understanding. It probably fueled his faith. He probably, it's like God giving him an inkling. The Babylonians will be overthrown by the Persians. Right? Because who prophesied that Cyrus would issue a decree? Cyrus of Persia. Who prophesied it? Jeremiah himself. And did Daniel know Jeremiah's writings? Most certainly. So can you imagine the mind of the prophet when he discovers, I'm in Babylon, but already the prince of Persia has overtaken. While in Babylon there's no political overtaking of the Babylonian system by the Persians yet. Yet in the mind of this prophet he knows a Persian king is going to send us back. Hmm? Isn't that, wouldn't you, if you were Daniel, feel encouraged by that thought? Do you understand what I'm saying? Please, brethren, catch this. Is this making sense? So it fuels the faith of the one who prays because he has sight into the unseen realm. That is why, you must know there was nothing in Daniel's day that gave any indication that anybody in Persia would be instrumental to release the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. 
but he saw something in the unseen world and he prayed with fervor. Don't be discouraged by what you see in the natural. Take your cue from the unseen processes in the, un, in the invisible unseen world. That is why the man of faith is fueled with great fervency, even in the light of contrary opposing conditions in the natural. Based upon a conviction and sight into the unseen world, he's convinced as to the will of God and will push through with great fervency until he sees the thing done in the earth. Ezra was a scribe. The temple had been rebuilt. He comes back to Jerusalem and listen carefully. He gathers people at the river Ahava. He is given leave of Babylon. He's in Babylon now, ruled by the Persians. He's given leave of Babylon to go back to see to the, as to the state of the Jews in Judah, Jerusalem. And he's given great resource, tremendously blessed. A huge amount of resource, tremendous wealth to ensure that the service of the temple at Jerusalem is reinstituted. A whole lot of money to purchase, a whole lot of livestock, for example, for all the range of sacrifices to be reinstated. But what is Ezra essentially? What is he by gifting? He's a scribe. Everyone say scribe. So Ezra is a scribe who is an expert in the law of Moses. He knows the Pentateuch, or the Torah, the first five books, like the back of his hand. Before the Persian king ever gave him leave and right to leave Babylon to go to Jerusalem, the Bible says this about Ezra, Ezra 7.10. For Ezra studied the law. Number two, he obeyed the law or practiced the law. And number three, he taught the law. Right? Now it says this, the grace of the Persian king to favor Ezra and to, to bestow upon him great kindness, like later the other king would do to Nehemiah, but in reference to Ezra, the grace of the, of, of the Persian king upon Ezra's life was because this man privately studied the law, did the law, and decided in his heart to teach the law to all of Israel. Everyone say, study, do, teach. In that order, study, do, teach. I told you last week, you can't teach until you've studied. You can't teach until you've did what you've studied. Your obedience to what you've studied is your authorization to speak. Ezra modeled this. Now please remember, when he was doing this, he had a desire in his heart to go back. But by virtue of his thorough preparedness, the king granted him huge favor. And I want to encourage you, never ever let go of the rigor, the diligence, the discipline by which you study God's word privately. That little do you know that that is preparatory to God using some great influential man to show you favor one day to give you a resource and an environment, an opportunity, yes, by God, to teach God's law to God's people. 
You cannot wait for the invitation to come and then make a decision. Let me prepare. You're going to have to have been prepared at that point in time. The word for is very important in that verse. I told you last week. It means because. The king favored Ezra. It says for. Because Ezra studied. Because Ezra did. Because Ezra determined. Everyone say determined. I like the word. It says for Ezra had determined. How determined are you to consistently study the word? Do it and be prepared to teach it in Israel. In our case, the church. I shared with you last week, I really believe, brethren, the predominant grace upon this corporate house is that of a scribal grace. Behold, I will send you prophets, wise men, and, and scribes. Jesus said to the Pharisees, what do I send you? Prophets, wise men, and scribes. The prophetic grace, the apostolic grace, and the scribal grace. What is a scribal grace? Amongst many things, other things. It relates to taking what was prophetically declared, which apostles have now doctrinally decreed, scribe comes as a third wave, and takes it and inscribes by teaching the principles on the hearts of God's people, not on external tablets of stone. I want to say it again. Listen carefully. Apostles, rather prophets, declare. Apostles decree by doctrine. They teach principles from God's word. The scribal grace comes and takes what was, what was prophetically declared, apostolically decreed by doctrine. A scribe comes and takes it and inscribes it. Sets it as a template in the heart and in the mind of the person. Remember, Moses had the law written on external stones, the, the Ten Commandments. Now God says, it will not be external. Behold, I will write my law in their hearts and their minds, and they will all know me, and no one will have need to come to them and teach them, saying, know the Lord. They will all know me, God says. I'm living in that day. We are living in that day, brethren. This is the day of the scribe. This is the day when a scribal grace will come to engraven. You know when you engraven something? You stamp it. You scar the mind with that principle. No one needs ever to encourage me that I need to tithe to God. Why? The scribal grace, as far as that principle is concerned, has been scarred in my mind. What was prophetically declared, apostolically laid down as doctrine, has been inscribed in my heart. I don't want to boast about this, but I can say too, no one will ever come to me to try and have the need to encourage me to forgive a brother that has gravely sinned against me. Why? Because the principle that apostles taught about forgiveness has been what? Inscribed. Everyone say inscribed. Inscribed upon my heart. Right? What if right now uh, Nicole uh, stabs me in the back? This is simply an example. Don't try it. <laughs> what, what if someone betrays me? Right? You know what? My reflexive response. I will not even wait one minute in unforgiveness, in bitterness. 
my most immediate response will be forgiveness and reconciliation. Why? I'm living in a day where the principle now is inscribed, where nobody will have to encourage me to follow God's way about that matter. I want to get the church to a place where your obedience becomes so reflexive, no one need ever encourage you to do the right thing. You know, when you operate by principle, you don't operate by preference. You must get out of operating by preference and rather operate by, by principle. Because if you prefer, preference means I have some room to have it my way. But if I know the principle, I, I, I install the principle as a reflexive, um, what's the mathematical term? Axiomatic. I remember Mr. Havaji, our maths teacher, taught, teaching this in high school. Axiomatic. It's like reflexive. It's like the instantaneous, immediate response that, will, that, that engenders within a person when confronted with a certain reality. So someone backstabs me, backstabs me. Okay, let's say, let me be honest. I'm human. I'll register a disappointment. How could you, Sean? I thought we were bruised. How could you? (laughs) But let me say, I'm being honest here, brethren. It will take five seconds. The next six seconds onwards, it will be, he's forgiven, and I'm ready to reinstate him completely. I can't afford to waste one hour in unforgiveness. You can't afford to waste one week in bitterness, brethren. So when I talk about the scribal grace, please listen to me very carefully. Who was the first to go back from Babylon to Jerusalem? It was Zerubbabel. He rebuilt the the temple. The structure is there, but the system of sacrifices, offerings, etc. has to still be reinstalled. Ezra will come, and basically with all the resource from the grace of the Persian king, reinstate the temple order to its proper mosaic function. Nehemiah will come later and rebuild the city walls to ward off enemy attacks. But you must understand what is Ezra's mandate. Remind your neighbor, he's a scribe. He's a scribe. The Bible actually calls him a ready scribe. And the word ready is quick, quick, prompt, but highly skilled. Highly skilled. Just this week, being with the guys in Stanger, my desire to know God's word more skillfully has gone up a bit, increased. How well do you know your Bible? But it's not just about being well-versed. It's about being well-practiced. It says he was a scribe well-practiced in the law. Like I said, he studied it, he lived it, and that qualified him to, to teach it. I beg of you, brethren, this church, everything that we've taught up to now in the apostolic prophetic, let it be inscribed upon your hearts. So that no, it says, I will take my law in Jeremiah 33. I will take my law and I will inscribe it or write it upon their hearts and minds so that, in other words, with this ultimate intent, they will all know me And they will not have anybody to do what? To teach them, saying, know the Lord, for everyone will know. That's why I said, I have no need of someone external coming to encourage me 
or teach me about certain principles in God because there are some principles that are fixed, will never be erased from my constitution. Money hits my hand. My mind starts working 10%. It's almost reflexive. Somebody offends me. My spirit re- responds, you are forgiven. In the name of the Lord, you are forgiven. Right? In other words, you must become so reflexive to things that God has inscribed. Now listen to the text. And you know, I said to you last week, you know what, when Nehemiah gathered, where did he meet? Which river? Ahava. Ezra, not Nehemiah, Ezra, sorry. Ezra 8.23, I think. He gathers and he camps there for three days before he starts his long journey back to Jerusalem. The journey would take them four months. And the Bible says, I called a fast there, and we began to seek our God for protection. And I said to you, the Ezra fast is not simply a fast for God to protect you on a long and dangerous journey. It's a fast to preserve the predominant grace or mandate vested in a man called Ezra. It's that grace, the scribal grace, that Jerusalem would need, not so. Because Jerusalem was exposed to Zerubbabel, the apostle. Jerusalem was exposed to Haggai and Zechariah, the prophetic dimension. Now, Ezra is coming as the, as the third installment of the scribe. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. He set some in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And you know when he gathered there for three days, you know what he said? He discovered, he looked at all the people, the composition of everybody there, and he says, he, it, it dawned upon him, hey, there's no Levites here going back with me. And he sent a special request to a man called Ido. And gather all the Levites that are able to do what? Able to teach. He wanted a company of teachers coming back to him, with him to Jerusalem. Why? You see, although the temple had been rebuilt, the law of God had not been inscribed. I'll come to it just now. Julian, read the scriptures. I'm going to end with that. Listen carefully. There was gross violation of God's revealed will. It was manifest in the nation in terms of intermarriage with all the foreign nations. And the scribe, when he comes and he sees this, he knows he was a master in the law. He sees the lives of the people are totally contrary to the revealed will of, of God. And the Bible says, I, I love the NASB. He says, when I saw this, I sat and I was appalled. And you know what the, 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 the sad thing? He said, this unfaithfulness was led by the leaders. He says, chief among all the sinners in this, this grave thing. He says, the leaders were at the front line in this thing. Isn't leadership in the global church in serious problems? Aren't we seeing daily, via the internet and via the news, how leaders compromise revealed standards of God's word? Isn't there growing dilution of purity? Isn't there growing compromise? Isn't there growing hypocrisy? And I want to encourage you, these things ought not to be so. Nehemiah gathers at the river Harvard and he makes specific requests. I need a scribal grace more, and not just me, to accompany me back there. Right? 
And together him and others, when Nehemiah ultimately would come after him, together with Nehemiah, remember Nehemiah 8 and 9? He stood up, Ezra, Nehemiah called Ezra and said, Ezra, come. And Ezra stood up, the Bible says, on a podium, raised on a platform, like a pulpit. It says, and Ezra stood together with the other Levites, the other scribes. Fourteen men in total. If you count the names, Ezra's name and thirteen others. Isn't that a powerful picture? What is 14? Seven times? Two. Not seven times seven. <laughs> Plus, okay. What is seven? Perfection. Yeah, we got a representation of a Levitical order, those who are attached to the heavens, attempting to bring perfection to Israel in terms of their lifestyle. This is the day I declare to you, church, where your obedience needs to be perfected. Now tell your neighbor, you better put your seatbelt on now. Because there's going to be some turbulence in the atmosphere. I am very serious, guys. I've never been more serious about serving God and managing a church and having oversight over the souls of people like I am presently. I want to say like Nehemiah. Nehemiah said right at the end of his book, he prayed to God. He said, oh Lord God. Remember me for all of my faithful deeds towards your house. I won't go to the three symbolic representations of the word Ahava. We did that last week in some great detail. If you missed it, please get last week's tape. I want to go now to the challenge that I feel is our portion for this house today. In Ezra chapter 9, if you go open your Bibles, Ezra 9 from verses 1 to 5. I just want to reread this. After these things, I'm reading from the ESV. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race, Israel, has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And here's the thing. And this faithlessness, some versions say this unfaithfulness, the hand of the officials and the chief of the men have been foremost. So what, this sin was led by the leadership, not so? Do you know when leaders sin, it it subconsciously gives tacit license to those they lead to sin. A leader's sin is very serious because it opens the door to a proneness to sin in the same area where the leader fell. You'll find this all over to be true. That is why those of us that are called to leadership, there's a greater demand in this season to subscribe to more rigorous standards of purity, holiness, rectitude, righteousness before the Lord our God. You will find in some congregations, if a leader is sinning and it's gross, and there's no recognition of it, or maybe there is, but there's no willingness to deal with it, you will find a door open to that congregation 
where demonic spirits enter in and subconsciously erode the commitment of ordinary saints to remain pure in those areas, and people find themselves falling. That is why those of us who are called to be leaders need to be more determined and committed than ever before to remain loyal, pure, and holy before the Lord our God. Amen? And if those of you are called to leadership, it's incumbent upon you. It is expected that you live a life of rectitude and holiness before the Lord. Amen. Say yes. This is true. That standard we will not compromise. Verse 3. So Israel is informed the people are intermarrying with foreign nations and whole lists of foreign nations like Moabites, Ammonites, Perizzites, Hevites, Egyptians are mentioned amongst others. It's also informed, oh by the way, Israel, all the leading men in Israel are foremost in this unfaithfulness. Israel realizes the gravity of the problem. The gravity of the problem. And he takes some drastic steps to correct it. I'll, I'll share with you in a moment. Now listen to me, verse 3. As soon as I heard this, what does he do? I tore my garment, my cloak, I pulled hair from my head. Picture the scene. Picture the, the pain. Picture the, the sheer disgust in the man of God. He says, when I heard this, I took a chunk of hair. I, I rent my clothes. I, you know what? Hair depicts glory. Glory has been marred. Glory has been tainted in Israel. And he pulls it out. And the Bible says, I sat appalled. Do you remember Nehemiah's response in Nehemiah chapter 1? When he heard the gates are burned, the walls are broken, the people are in distress, and the people are in reproach. Nehemiah said, when I heard that, what did I do? I sat. I wept. He says, I mourned for many days and I fasted before the Lord my God. I want to encourage you, brethren. I'm trying to burden you with how you ought to feel about gross sin in the church. Don't wash it under the carpet and think that it will go undealt with by God in the heavens. We as servants of God, when we note sin, we can't lightly gloss over it. We have to deal with it like Israel would deal with it in his, in his time. But I'm just so, so taken aback by the deep way in which the sin affected the, this man Israel. Remember, I want to remind you, what is Israel? Come on, talk to me. What is he? A scribe. He's got a scribal grace. What has he already done? He's known the first five books of the Bible. What has he already done? He's done every one of them in terms of being obedient to all of its commandments. Not so. So when he comes to the church, which is Jerusalem, and he sees in the matter of marriage, which God in the law completely forbid Israel to marry foreign wives, he sees a, gro a, gro a gross departure away from biblical standards. And it, he is appalled by it. I want to encourage you, never mind other people, 
when you mess up, do you become appalled by your own behavior? Do you become, or is it like you can wake up tomorrow and carry on sinning like it's nothing? Are you still convicted by your conscience when you violate known commands? Thamo has been teaching recently that every person allow your conscience to be your pastor. Your conscience must convict you when you violate certain laws. Do you know if you set your alarm system in your house, we have one, and you've got those beams, if an intruder violates, I use the term deliberately, if an intruder violates your home by illegally entering a domain that he should not, what happens? Woo, 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 the alarm goes off. Same thing should happen to you. The law is like a warning system in your heart and in your mind. If you, by your attitude or behavior, cross the line into a domain that you are intruding into that you should not be, warning signals should go off in your spirit. Saying something is wrong, I should not be doing this, let me quickly correct my behavior. If you continue with the warning signal still blazing, guess what? There are consequences. There are consequences. I felt this so heavily this week, I can't tell you. I want to appeal to this house. Do not violate covenant. The covenant of marriage. It talks about intermarriage. Yeah. Do not commit adultery. Whether physical or mental. Whether literal or emotional. Do not commit adultery. And adultery is not just the violation of the marriage covenant. That law in God's covenant has with it a whole constellation of other sins, like fornication. Tamar taught this recently, now last week in Stanton, like fornication. Pornography. Masturbation. The entertainment of flirtatious behavior with members of the opposite sex. Even though you think your intentions are honest, if it's flirtatious, it's borderline, you must desist from doing that. I speak to you as the scribe of God. Take that principle and inscribe it upon your heart and mind. And the moment you step beyond its borders, let the alarm bells go off. And do not come to the place where your conscience becomes seared with a hot iron and you can do something, you know, if you continue therein, the consequences are dire, but you still continue nevertheless. I'll show you a verse just now. Ezra deals with this. Everyone say to your neighbor, thou shalt not commit adultery. Tell, tell this to your neighbor, thou shalt not commit fornication. Say this to someone, be faithful to the marriage covenant. I'm not just talking marriage, I hope you get the principle. Yes, marriage. I'm talking about being loyal to authentic covenantal joinings. Hmm? And then in verse, so Israel looks at the situation, 
You know why he, you know why, listen carefully, this went on for 70 years, not so? And the exiles who came back simply, because they had lost the law of God for 70 years while in exile, they came back and simply mend and blended in with the prevailing culture. You see, if you don't have standards firmly erected in your life, you're going to mingle and blend with the group, and you're going to find holy standards being compromised. You see, to someone else that can look at it, they'll say, it's fine. Ezra looks at it and says, hear out, I am a sick, he says, I'm sick to my gills. I'm appalled, that's what appalled means, utterly disgusted at the state of affairs. Now, this is what I like, verse 4, look carefully. It says, all who trembled at the word of God to Israel, of, of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, they gathered around me while I sat and I was appalled until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting. The, 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 the word there in the Greek, the Hebrew is fasting. Some of your versions have prayer or your humiliation, to humble himself. The word there in the, in the Hebrew means fasting. The ESV correctly translates it. So, did Ezra fast twice? Yes. He fasted for safe passage. When he gets there, he sees, what? What is this? So, what does he do further? He again humbles himself by fasting, and he prays that, that long prayer, beautiful prayer, that, that Jules read fast this evening. He, he repents before the Lord God on behalf of the state of the nation. And he says, I, I rose from my fasting and my garment and my cloak torn. I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And he makes this, this wonderful prayer. Remember Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. Listen carefully. Let me, say it. Let me quote it to you. Take it down if you're making notes. Thus says the Lord God, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you can build for me? And where is the place that I may lay my rest? Now God is saying, hey, heaven is my home, earth is my footstool. How can you build me a house when I inhabit the entirety of the expanse of the heavens and earth being my footstool? In the next verse he answers, for my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one will I look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. And he who trembles at my word. If you are full of pride, you reject and repel grace. Because James says, he gives grace to the humble. God withstands or resists the proud man, but he gives grace to the humble. What is fasting? Fasting is an expression of humility. I humble my soul with, with fasting. Right? God says, I live in the expanse of the heavens, but there's another context that, that I will choose to locate my presence. I will put myself in the man who is humble, contrite, and a man that trembles at my word. Who gathered to Nehemiah? 
He says, a lot of people gathered around me while I sat there appalled. All those that did what? All those that trembled at the word of the Lord, of the God of Israel. Let me say, what does God's commandments mean to you? Do you can you fob them off or do you still hold them in deep awe, in deep reverence, in deep respect? Never ever lose your respect and your honor for God's principles. Tell your neighbor, tremble. When he speaks, tremble. In other words, it's not a, it's not a negative psychological fear. It's simply a, an expression of deep respect. Lord, if you speak, I will not disregard it. I will listen and I will bring my life to a path of obedience. A path of obedience. Let me just say this. The issue of intermarriage is a serious one. In the modern day, um, I want to encourage our young people, you should not court anybody that does not know God. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, the Bible says. You cannot court anyone, particularly with a view to marriage, but even not, never mind marriage, not even court anyone that does not serve the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do that, you are courting trouble, not an unbeliever. God is your father. The devil is their father. Your father-in-law will be Satan. It's simple. You're going to court unnecessary problems from the in-laws in the spirit. Keep yourself pure. You make the wrong decision in a moment of time. And you can live with negative repercussions for the rest of your life. Right? And let me just say this. The issue about intermarriage in Nehemiah's day. I don't have time to teach this from the book of Malachi. God, the reason why God forbid intermarriage, God was after keeping the seed pure. Keeping the seed, he said, keep the seed holy. Keep the seed pure and keep it and keep it holy. Now, listen to me. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 17 quickly. Read. Do you love the word of the Lord? I'll read some verses quickly, right? Deuteronomy 17 from verse 16. Here are laws given for every king that will come and rule Israel. Please bear in mind, this is the book of Deuteronomy. There's no kings yet. In fact, they're still journeying in the, in the wilderness. They haven't even conquered to conquest. Right? So God was, what was God doing even before they come into the land? And God knew one day they would want a king over them. God was busy setting the prescription, is inscribing principles that will govern the monarchy in the day in, in Israel. So this is what God said, Deuteronomy 17, 16. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply for himself, 
nor shall you cause people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord God has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will be turned away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Please bear in mind, these are laws for who? For kings. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it in the days of his life. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart might not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he might not turn, be turned aside from the commandment to the right nor to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of, in the midst of Israel. God says when this king comes, he must not multiply horses, nor go down to Egypt to multiply horses. For I brought you up out of Egypt, and I command you, you shall not go that way, Again, when this king comes to power, he shall not marry any foreign, foreign wives. Now, who is the classic example that violated every single one of these commands? Solomon. Let me give you the reference. You'll find this in 1 Kings 11 from verses 1, 2 to 10. Right? King Solomon loved many foreign women. That's how it starts. It's like the first thing God told a king not to do. When this guy comes into kingship, that's the first thing he does. Right? You see, this is where I Please hear my heart. And what was the requirement for every king? You take a pen before you start ruling. And you take some papyrus or paper. And in the presence of a Levitical priest, you make your own copy of the Torah. You write it. What? There's no typing, no no. Typewriters then, eh? you write every law, the first five books of the Bible. The king had to write it out with his own hand. What was God trying to do? God was wanting to make sure this law, the king, the ruler, is thoroughly familiar with it. And more than being inscribed on paper, it must be inscribed in the, in the heart. This is where I'm after, brethren. You see, can I use your notes? You see, I give you notes regularly. But my serious concern now is, is the principle on paper or is the principle in the heart? The law must, be, must leave the external and must be inscribed in the internal state of the, internal state of the heart. Solomon did not do that. You know what the Bible even says? He even, even went to foreign nations for horses. God specifically said, don't get any horses. He accrued massive wealth unto himself. There wasn't a richer king like Solomon. And God specifically told the kings, thou shalt not accrue to yourself too much wealth. He violates every command. This week, brethren, all of you, make certain that the alarm system of God's principles are engraven upon your heart. If this is violated, let me, let me encourage you now. If this is violated, you need to repent before the Lord your God. 
Esther repents with fasting a second time. And let me just read, a few, read to you a few verses. I want to encourage you to all bring your Bibles every week to church. Right? Although we, on occasion we do have notes given to you, but just to bring your Bible so that in the event like today, uh, where we don't have notes for you, we'll have these notes ready for you by next week. We'll give them out to you. We'll be, also be emailed. But you need to refer to the word of the, of the Lord. Do you know, please take this reference down, don't turn to it. I gave it to you, 1 Kings 11, from verse 1 to 10. It talks about how Solomon had, how many wives did he have, foreign wives? 700. How many concubines? 300 concubines. How many women is that? 1,000 women. And there are only 365 days in the year. How on earth did this man cope? You must know each one has got a mother. That's a thousand mother-in-laws. <laughs> and he was supposed to be the wisest man on the earth. I don't know how this guy coped truly. And you know what? It wasn't like good women. It's women from foreign nations that God said don't even look there. Right? And this was the reason. You know what the Bible says? These women turned his heart, what? Away from the Lord his God. And he even built idols for each of their foreign heathen deities. Like, for example, he married Moabite women. He married the women that despise fathering. Moabite means what father? He brings that principle into his kingdom, where fathering is despised through intermarriage. And he built an idol for Chemosh. Chemosh is the god of the Moabites. He puts it on a, on a, high, on a high place. For Molech, the god of the Ammonites, I think, he builds high places. And each of the nations, he, he honors their foreign gods. And what does he do? He brings an inter-religious system into Israel. Along with the worship of Yahweh, you can also worship this one, you can worship this one, you can worship this one. And what do we see in the church today? Come to church, worship God, go home, entertain your idols... Have a mixed position. Don't have absolute standards. Compromise here. Compromise there. And when Ez That is what Ezra saw. Ezra does not just see intermarriage. He sees it for what it represents. I'm calling the church to a singular position. Thamo, in one of his sermons recently, from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, sorry. He said two words. He said, he said, church at Santon, I want to encourage you. Sincerity and simplicity. Live a sincere life and live a simple life. A simple life simply suggesting absolute obedience. For example, if you lie, let's say you lie about something. Do you know what you're going to spend a lot of time doing trying to cover up the lie? That is not a simple life. A simple life is a life of integrity. And just be genuine. Everyone say sincerity. Say simplicity. Those are two buzzwords that must govern your life. Be sincere. You know what? The less hypocrisy you do, the less uncluttered your life will be. You'll come to a place of singularness, righteousness in the Lord. 
So I want to encourage you to be pure and holy before the Lord. And you know what the officials say to Nehemiah? Jules read it. They say to, to him, Arise, for this matter is your mandate. You have a duty to sort this out. Let me activate some of you. I believe some of God is calling some in this church to address situations that you know are not right. You can see it's not right from a mile away, but you're still keeping quiet. I suggest to you that this matter too is your preserve to do. This matter too is a responsibility that God has placed in your hand. Don't shrink back from the Ezra mandate to bring correction of God's standards to a context that you see is totally compromised. Ezra. You see, the scribe is not just doing Bible studies in his room somewhere. He's empowered. He does all that. Studies, obeys and teaches. He does teach like he will do when... You know, when, when Nehemiah came back, it was like a powerful opportunity. Guess why, probably, in some respect, the intermarriage gained momentum in Ezra's time. There was no walls. The walls of the city were... There was a temple, but no walls. And no walls means easily crossing over of influence from outside to in. When Nehemiah comes, sees the situation, he wrecks the walls. And in Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9, Israel is called and they read in the book of the law of Moses to bring the law of God back to inscribe it upon the heart and the mind. 1 Chronicles 5 and verse 20. Just take it down. But let me just... Highlight one verse for you. In 1 Kings 11, 1, 1 to 10, when it lists all of Solomon's sins and how he married these foreign women, you know what the Bible says? That God warned him about it twice. And he says, for this thing, the Lord God warned him twice. How often have we been warned? You know what the Bible says? He who is often reproved and hardens his heart shall be cut off, and that without remedy. I'll give you the reference later. Listen to this verse. If you are warned and warned and warned and you still leave rebellious, it says he who is often reproved and still hardens his heart shall be what? Cut off, and that without remedy, without the hope of redemption. It's a dangerous place to be. That's why um, I taught the church there in Stanger this morning about the UER son. The UER son, one of the great characters about a, a mature son, he has the ability to receive correction. The hallmark of maturity is the ability to say sorry when I'm corrected. If you can't say sorry if someone corrects you, you prove that you are immature. But if, if you are wrong and someone corrects you, and you say, yes, I'm sorry, I see my wrong, you demonstrate your maturity in God. But if you consistently rebel against correction, and you do it often enough with rebellion, there'll come a time when the grace of God will be lifted. Solomon's end is sad. Being David's son, he does not live up to the legacy.
By the way, all of these sins of Solomon will later be said King Ahab, who marries Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Sidon, Sidonians. Intermarriage will become rampant in the church. So throughout the line of kings, it was a major problem, starting with Solomon. God ends the monarchy, takes the whole nation to Babylonian captivity for 70 years because of the abominations. They come back to Jerusalem, and what is still happening? The same problem. Here's the principle. Sometimes when leaders commit gross sins, they leave a legacy of error in their time, such that even years later people can't break out of it. It is very important for leadership to live upright, respectable lives. Amen? Now, you might say, yes, Randolph, that's for you because you are our leader. But you are all leaders in your own right. If you are, if you are a husband, you are a leader over your home. Make sure the standard you are setting in your home life is leaving a path of truth Righteous behavior, honorable behavior, that your kids one day can say, we can follow that example. We have a standard to look back to. Right? Remember Josiah could not find any role model within the immediacy of the kings before him who died? What did he do? The Bible says he walked in the ways of his father who? David. But David was several generations before him. Our young people must not struggle to find a role model in their time. You must be ever present before them, showcasing to them how it ought to be done. And let me challenge you, even the young people, you seek to be that standard. And if you don't have that standard, listen carefully, because King Josiah was young. He came to the throne, I think he was eight years old. He was a young man, right? And I want to encourage you, if you can't find an adequate role model in the immediacy of your environments, trust God, search the scriptures, and model your life after something that is true. Amen. It's time, you know, I want you to leave here with a new, a serious resolve in your heart. I'm going to be true to the Lord my God. I'm not going to compromise. Let me encourage you quickly. I know time has gone. First, First Chronicles 5 and verse 20. If I don't want anybody to leave condemned tonight. If you have erred, let me encourage you. There's great grace, great mercy from God our Father present here tonight. First Chronicles 5.20 says, they were, help, they were helped against them, the Hagarites, and all who were with them were given into their hand. I like this part. It says, why were they helped? Because they cried to God in battle, and He answered their prayers because they trusted in Him. They cried, they trusted in Him, and He answered their prayers. Second Chronicles 33, from verse 10 to 13. Let me, let me, let me just encourage you. If you cry to God, Trust Him with all your heart. He will also hear you. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Now here's rebellion. 
The Lord spoke to Manasseh, a rebellious king in his day. That's why I said the Lord speaks to you, speaks to you. You don't listen, you don't listen, listen here. The next verse, therefore the Lord brought what? The commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. They captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, he entreated or cried to the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, he, God, listen to this, when Manasseh, who was reproved, did not listen, God raises the Assyrian Empire with hooks, drag him to Babylon. The man is in distress. He realizes, I'm bearing the consequences of my rebellion. And what does the Bible say? He humbles himself. I think he fasted because the Bible says he humbles himself and he prays for mercy. And you know what the Bible says about this prayer? It says, God was moved by his prayer. God was touched by his repentance. And he brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. This was very encouraging to me when I read it. You know why we all mess up? Tell your neighbor, we all mess up. But if you position yourself before the Lord your God, and if you are humble and serious and sincere enough, like Manasseh's prayer moved God. It says God, I mean God punished this man because of his rebellion, but the man's crying to him in distress, in humility. And in the Bible, I like this, Manasseh's prayer, it says God was moved by his prayer and brought him back to Jerusalem. Then Manasseh knew, that God is God. That God is God. Amen. There is great mercy here this evening. Remain humble before the Lord your God. Commit to a path of the scribe. Will you say in your heart, Lord, I have been taught so much in this local church, or wherever church you go to. I've heard so much, I know so much of your ways, but I don't want it to be only an external commandment. Now, I want it to be what? Inscribed upon my heart, like an alarm system. You know what Isaac did to his two boys? He called, who was the two boys? Jacob and Esau. Was it? Yes. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, said to Isaac, I feel like vomiting if our sons choose as their bride a daughter from the sons of Heth, foreign, foreigners. She says, I will be revulsed to the point of nausea if the boys choose partners inaccurately. You must know it's Abram, Isaac, and now Jacob. They were not just concerned that he marries accurately. They were concerned that the seed be preserved. And they must marry the right woman. And Rebecca says, she says, I'm, actual King James says, she says, I am weary for my life. You know, it'll pain me if my boys choose inaccurately. For me, it will never be, I will never gloss over it. 
I will subject myself to intense prayer and fasting because I know the consequences. It's going to be a matter of seriousness for me. And you know what, what, what Rebecca said? She says, I feel like vomiting at the thought that the boys will take one of those. You know what Jacob then does? Jacob, the Bible says, summoned his sons. And the word that is used, the Bible says, and Jacob warned his sons not to take in marriage the daughters of the sons of Heth. You know what that word warn in the Hebrew means? It literally means what I've explained. It means to install as an inscribed principle in their heart and in their mind as a warning system. So Jacob, you heard me? Yes, Isaac speaking. I lay the principle in your heart and mind. Esau, I lay the principle in your heart and mind. But you know what the response of the two boys? The next verse says, And Jacob obeyed his father. The next verse says, But when Esau, man of the flesh, saw that the daughters of Heth were beautiful and that they displeased his father, he went into them to marry them. Gross. You know, that's when the law is external, but the law is not inscribed. I think even Jacob looked at one of those girls. The alarm bell just went off. Why? Because the law was in the heart and the law was in the, in the mind. 